Yechezkel or Ezekiel is the um, author of the book called Yechezkel, which is one of three major works of our prophets. We have three big books of prophecy, Yeshayahu, Isaiah, Yirmiyahu, Jeremiah, and Yechezkel. Um, Ezekiel. There's also 12 minor books of prophets, or 12 very short books of prophets that are included together in the book of Treyasar in the book of 12. All these books are all books of Tanakh, books of our scripture. In addition to the Torah itself, there are the five books of Moses. There are another 19 holy books. And so Yechezkel, and together they make up the Tanakh, the books of our scripture. And so Yechezkel is one of the books of our scripture. Now, the tone and structure of the book and the prophecies in it are very, very different than the other books. In some sense, Yechezkel is one, Ezekiel is one of the most difficult books of Tanakh, one of the most difficult books of prophecy. Yechezkel has some very cryptic and esoteric visions and some very graphic and detailed descriptions. And there's a lot of symbolism. There's a lot of symbolic acts in Yechezkel. And he has all sorts of, he does various things that Hashem tells him to do um, as part of these prophetic predictions that Hashem gives him. So Yechezkel himself, his name is Yechezkel ben Buzi HaKohen. He is a Kohen and he is a prophet. And he begins his prophecy in Babylonia in the year 437 BCE. So we're talking about 2,500 years, almost 2,500 years ago. According to one opinion, he was actually the son of Jeremiah, the prophet Yirmiyahu, who was also a Kohen. Now Yirmiyahu remained in the land of Israel and never made it to Babylon, as far as we know. Yechezkel began his prophecy in Babylon, but he was a contemporary of Yirmiyahu, of Jeremiah. They both were prophets at the very, very end of the period of the first temple. Only that he was significantly younger. The prophet Yirmiyahu, Jeremiah, began his prophecy in the days of King Yoshiyahu, in the days of King Josiah, he's called in English, one of the last kings of Israel, and at least two, three decades before Yechezkel began his prophecy. So he's a little bit older, but they definitely overlapped for a number of years. Now this period, to go back to this period, there were, there were Jews, of course, came to the land of Israel in the days of Joshua, Moses' successor, they lived in the land of Israel for hundreds of years before they had their first king, King Saul, who was later succeeded by his son-in-law, King David, who was succeeded by his son, King Solomon. After the death of King Solomon, the King Solomon built the first temple some 440 years after they entered the land. After the death of King Solomon, the kingdom split into two. There was a northern kingdom where ten tribes were ruled. Ten tribes were in this northern kingdom. It was called the kingdom of Israel. And there was a southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judea that was ruled by the house of David and its capital was Jerusalem. The northern kingdom lasted for a little over 200 years before it was destroyed and captured by the, Babylon, by the Assyrians and the ten tribes were exiled. 
What happened to them, those 10 tribes is a class of its own. We spoke about that once before. Later, the king, king Chizkiyahu, a later king, was able to extend his reign over all of Israel, and the entire Israel then became the kingdom of Yehuda of Judea. Little over a hundred years later, the kingdom of Judea was captured in the, at the end of the reign of King Yoshiyahu. About 150 years later, the kingdom was captured by the Egyptians. The Egyptians captured the kingdom of Israel. And it became essentially a kingdom under the rule of the Egyptians. This was in the, at the end of, at the, by the death of King Yoshiyahu, his son King Yehoiakim becomes king. This happened, just to give you context, 443 BCE. Four years later, or three years later, in 440 BCE, Nebuchadnezzar captured Israel, the king, the emperor of the Babylonian Empire, captures the land of Israel from the Egyptians. And um, Jehoiakim uh, remains king under him for about ten years, about eight years, and about eight years later, he rebels against him. Nebuchadnezzar and attempts to switch sides to the Egyptian side. They're kind of in between two empires, between the Egyptian Empire and the Babylonian Empire. Jehoiakim, uh, Nebuchadnezzar comes, captures Israel, kills Jehoiakim, at first attempts to appoint his son, Jehoiachin, as king, but then he decides to exile Jehoiachim. And he exiles Jehoiachim together with most of Israel's leaders, all of the royal family, most of the royal family, as well as most of the governors and the various people in leadership positions and the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Council, all the spirit religious leaders and the leading Kohanim and all the wealthy people, all the aristocrats of Israel, the entire aristocratic class of Israel is brought back to Babylonia. And only the commoners are, are, remain under the reign of King Tzidkiyahu, who is a brother of Yehoiakim, a son of King Yoshiyahu. And King Tzidkiyahu is king for 11 years. So Yecheskel, the prophet Yecheskel, was presumably already a leader in Israel and a prominent Kohen in Israel in um, during this time, and he was one of the many prominent Kohanim who were exiled together with all of the Jewish leadership to Babylonia. He was one of the leading Kohanim, and he essentially becomes the spiritual leader of the Jews of Babylon during this period. He becomes entire Sanhedrin is there. He is presumably one of the leaders already of the Sanhedrin of the Supreme Council of Judaism. And so he, the actual leader, Jeremiah, remained behind. He was the prophet and the leader. He stayed behind together with his chief disciple, Baruch ben Neriah. They stay behind. Most of the religious leadership, led by Ezekiel, Yecheskel, are brought to Babylon. And so at this time, Yecheskel begins his prophecy in Babylon during this period. 
It's during this 11-year period when the leadership of Israel are all in Babylon and all getting themselves settled. They weren't brought as slaves. They were brought as free men, but made to live in Babylon. Um, and they're getting themselves settled and they're building institutions and building communities and purchasing land in Babylon. Um, they're, they have freedom. They can do whatever they want. They just have to stay in Babylon. They can't go back to Israel. And Yechezkel um, begins his role as a prophet four years after being exiled. And during this time, most Jews are still living in the land of Israel. The temple is still functioning, but the leadership isn't there. Eleven years later, or seven years after, Yechezkel begins his prophecy. Um, the temple is destroyed. Um, Tzidkiyahu, the king, rebels against the Buchanezar. The temple is destroyed. The temp- the, and all the rest of the people are exiled to Babylon as slaves. Thankfully, they already established Jews that were able to purchase them by their freedom. And the rest of the community ends up in Babylon. Again, Jeremiah remained behind. He does not make it to Israel. He survives. He lives through the destruction, doesn't make it to Israel. Um, he dies later. He goes to Egypt and he dies in, presumably in Egypt later. Um, but that's a story of its own. We spoke about it. We spoke about Jeremiah. And Yechezkel remains one of the leaders of the Jewish people in Babylon um, during this time. He, so he's a prophet for a number of years throughout the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. Um, his last prophecy is um, his last prophecy is uh, about um, 26 years after he had been exiled. So um, so this is a number of years. This is a number of years after the destruction of the temple. And according to our tradition, he died before the death of King Nebuchadnezzar. So King Nebuchadnezzar was king for about um, 37 years after they came into exile. He was king for a long time. And so he lived and led Israel during this period and died before the death of Nebuchadnezzar. After his death, Israel was led by Baruch ben Neiriah, became the spiritual leader of Israel, who was the student of Jeremiah, who after the death of Jeremiah in Egypt moved to Babylon, where he became the leader of the Sanhedrin. It's unclear if Ezekiel was still alive at the time or not. So Yechezkel himself, all of what we know of him is from his book. And the book is really entirely prophecies. It all tells us prophecies. Before I get to the details of his prophecies, are there any questions? So Yechezkel has some very powerful and some very esoteric prophecies. At the very, very beginning of the book, and then later, a couple chapters later, Yechezkel has two visions where he sees what we call the Merkava. Merkava is a chariot. And he describes in very, very graphic detail how he sees this chariot. And this chariot is carried by four creatures. A ox, and a, a lion, and an ox, and an eagle, and a person. And on this chariot he sees God in the form of a person. And he describes seeing various different angels. In very, and this is in very, very graphic detail, an entire chapter where he describes this Merkava, and then later, a couple chapters later, 
he has another whole chapter where in great detail he describes this Merkava, this chariot. Now clearly his vision was a spiritual vision. God has no form. Spiritual things don't have form. God alone has no form whatsoever. We spoke about, we did a class about a little while back, about God having no form. So God, God has no form whatsoever. So the Merkava then is meant to be understood as metaphors for God's presence, for God's process of creation. And indeed, Kabbalists explain the Merkava in very, very great detail. But I think we can say that the description of the Merkava in Yechezkel and Ezekiel is the most esoteric part of Tanakh, of our holy scriptures, where it really speaks about God and angels and the forms of the forces of creation in very, very great graphic detail. It speaks of lights and wheels and um, all sorts of very hard to understand and very esoteric. You read it at face value. It doesn't seem to make any sense. Um, but the Kabbalists explain in great detail every single detail of this Merkava, what every single detail actually means in an esoteric sense as a metaphor. Now, our sages say um, that all prophets who had these spiritual experiences saw a Merkava or saw what Ezekiel saw. Nobody bothered to explain it. Nobody bothered to describe it. The prophet Isaiah describes seeing Hashem, but he doesn't give us much detail. And that's because because Yechezkel was outside of Israel, because he was on a lower spiritual level, he was outside of Israel. So therefore our sages say that it's like if a person from the capital city who sees the palace all the time goes to the palace or sees the emperor, they're not very impressed. They see it all the time. But if a villager from a faraway village comes and sees the palace... They're amazed by the grandeur of the palace. So other prophets, who, for them it was normal. They didn't bother describing the details. Yechezkel, because he was outside the land of Israel, he was amazed by all the details that he experienced in his prophecy. And therefore he describes it, and in general all his prophecies are described in very, very great detail. So the first 24 chapters of the book, the first half of the book of Yechezkel, take place in the seven years from when he began prophecy, the fourth year of his exile, until when the temple was destroyed. And these are prophecies to the people in Babylon and messages for him to send to the people in Israel that they need to change their ways. They need to turn away from idol worship or the temple will be destroyed and everybody will be sent into exile. And most of these prophecies involve particular instructions. And while we find the other prophets do this as well, where Hashem tells them to do various things that are symbolic of their prophecy, we find Isaiah does it, Jeremiah does it, some of the other, Hosea, some of the minor prophets do it. But Yechezkel Ezekiel does this more than any other prophet. 
Hashem tells him to do certain things that are going to be symbolic of the prophecy. And um, they, he has these very symbolic and very detailed prophecies about the destruction. For example, Hashem tells him to make a sculpture of the city of Jerusalem and make a sculpture with armies besieging it, with catapults and with battering arms, battering rams, the things they would use to break the walls of the city and throw things over and make an entire sculpture so that you can show people what it's going to look like, what the siege of Jerusalem is going to look like. Hashem told him that he should lie down on his left side when he sleeps for 390 days straight and eat um, only dry bread for these 390 days corresponding to the number of years that Israel, the northern kingdom, had sinned. Now, the northern kingdom lasted for just over 200 years, but it includes also from when they entered the promised land, all the years they had sinned until the northern kingdom was destroyed. And then he tells them to lie on his right side for 40 days, corresponding to the number of years that Judea, the southern kingdom, had sinned. They hadn't sinned all the years, but there had been some really bad years when they were led by kings, the horrible kings, the horrible leaders. At one point, God transported him in a vision to Jerusalem to show him the people worshipping idols. And he takes him inside in the secret cellars where they would secretly worship idols so they would not be caught. And he shows it to him. And God tells him to put a mark on everyone who he sees transgressing, that they'll be marked, that they're for punishment when the days of punishment come. Like Jeremiah, we're told that he struggles with false prophets. Jeremiah struggles with false prophets. The false prophets at this time were saying, don't worry, nothing's going to happen. Everything's going to be just fine. The temple won't be destroyed. The Babylonians will disappear. We'll be fine, don't worry. Jeremiah struggled with these prophets. The book of Jeremiah describes in great detail. Um, He even gives us some names, Hananiah ben Azar and other prophets that were... um, that he, struggled, that he struggled with. And Yechezkel, Ezekiel also struggled with these false prophets. And the prophet Yechezkel also used a lot of metaphor. In one prophecy, Hashem describes to him in Jewish history as a relationship between a man and a woman, something that we find also in other books of our prophets. And we have a whole book, a whole song of Shir Hashirim, Song of Songs, that really describes it as well, describing how God took us out of Egypt and brought us close to him, and then we cheated on him. We cheated on him by going after other gods. He describes King Nebuchadnezzar as this powerful eagle that catches and destroys everything in its path. He has a very famous parable of two sisters, one he calls Ahala and one Ahaliva. And the older one, Ahala, gets married and cheats on her husband and gets punished severely for doing so. And that's a reference to the northern kingdom of Israel. And then the younger one, Ahaliva, also is caught cheating on her husband and will get punished for doing so as well. And this is a, a metaphor for the southern kingdom, for Judea. 
At one point, God tells him in a very strange prophecy, God, or maybe tragic prophecy, God tells him to go and announce that his wife is going to die from plague. And he goes out and he announces that his wife is going to die from plague. And he announces it in the morning, and that evening his wife died. And God told him, do not mourn for her as you normally would. Don't mourn, don't do any of the signs of mourning. And tell the people, just as my wife died and I didn't mourn, so too the city of Jerusalem will be captured, the temple destroyed, and all the people will be taken to exile. And you will be so overcome with suffering, you will not even be able to mourn. So these are some of the many warnings that go through many, many, many chapters. He warns the people both in Babylon and in Jerusalem to change their ways. At the same time, Jeremiah is in Jerusalem also warning the people to change their ways. And neither of them are successful because indeed the temple is destroyed. The Babylonians um, besiege the temple. The temple is destroyed and he describes how one day someone came to him and told him, reported the horrible news, how the temple had been destroyed. Somehow Yecheskel though was successful. He wasn't successful at getting the people to change their ways before the temple was destroyed. But although the people in Judea or many of the people had been idolaters, had done horrible things to each other and acted horribly, somehow... When they came to Babylon, all the idol worship disappears. It's all gone. The people come to Babylon and they find God again. And they turn back to Hashem. And they turn back to the commandments once again. When they come back to Babylon, maybe having all the religious leadership there 11 years earlier and built already Jewish institutions helped. But they all find Hashem when they come back to Babylon. The Jewish people remain loyal to Torah. And they continue despite the destruction of the temple and despite the exile. In his prophecies, he doesn't only address Israel, but like the other prophets, many of the other prophets, he also addresses the other nations. He predicts the destruction of Ammon and Moab, two nations that live to the east of Israel in modern-day Jordan. He speaks of the destruction of Edom, a nation that lived south of Israel, also in modern-day Jordan. And then he describes in very great detail um, the, the nation of Tsur, Tyre, and describes of how it was a seafaring nation on the ocean. It was a very strongly, um, it was very strongly um, fortified, um, so much so that though the Babylonians had captured the lands around, they had failed to capture Tsur, Tyre, and that Tyreans were very arrogant. And he speaks of how God will destroy this nation of Tyre Tyre because of their arrogance and God will allow the Babylonians to destroy them. And then he speaks of the Egyptians and how arrogant the Egyptians are and how arrogant Pharaoh is. And they think they can withstand any invasion. And God will send the Babylonians after them too. The Babylonians will capture Egypt and destroy Egypt. And indeed they did. They capture Egypt, they destroy Egypt. And Egypt never existed again. That was the end of Egypt. Later it becomes a Greek nation under the Ptolemies. Um, and later, later it becomes a Roman state and then an Arabic state. But Egypt, as Egypt, is gone forever. Any questions? Yes. 
No, they're not. That's only the first half. After the destruction of the temple, Yechezkel has a number of prophecies about how the people will be returned to the land and how the land will be rebuilt and the temple will be rebuilt. And he speaks of Hashem's great love for Israel and Hashem's concern for Israel, even while they are in exile. And he comforts them, just as the prophet Yeshayahu, Isaiah, who was long before the destruction, speaks about the destruction. The second half of his book is about Hashem comforting them after the destruction. Jeremiah is almost all negative. But um, Yechezkel, the second half, is very positive. And in what is perhaps Yechezkel's most famous prophecy, he speaks about how Hashem brought him to a valley of bones. And Hashem asks him, look at these bones, will these bones come to life? And Yechezkel says, I don't know, you know, Hashem. And Hashem then tells him, uh, then he watches and Hashem tells him, these bones, Yichyum Meisecha, these bones will come back to life. And he watches as the bones join together and then begin to grow veins and flesh and skin until they become bodies. And then the bones stand up, then these bodies stand up as people. And they come back to life. And there is this massive, huge number of people a massive army, he describes it, of people who have now come back to life. And Hashem says, tell the people, they say that they have dried out like dried bones. Don't worry. Not only will you come back, to all those who have died have come back to life, will come back to life. And their graves will be opened up. And all, those, all our loved ones who have died, or everyone who has died, will all come back. This is something mentioned also by other prophets. Isaiah already mentioned that other prophets mentioned that, but the most graphic description, both of the dead coming back to life. We had two stories earlier in the book of Kings, one with Eliyahu Hanavi, Elijah the prophet, and one with Elisha Hanavi, Elisha the prophet, both of whom bring the dead back to life. One per, each one brought one person back. But here, Yechezkel has this whole valley of people whom he brings back to life. And he's told just as these people came back to life, all people in the future times, everyone will come back. Does it mean do we believe in reincarnation? No. Do we believe in reincarnation? That is an excellent question. Um, we discussed that in another class. We believe in a concept called Gilgul, but it's a separate concept. But this has nothing to do with that. This is those who died, they themselves will come back. Their body will be reconstructed by Hashem, and they will come back. We will see them again. Only those that are deserving, we're told, those that are not deserving will not. The horrible people won't. But generally, everybody um, and all of Israel will come back to, Hashem will bring back to life. And it is a fundamental belief in Judaism, the belief that all who died will come back to life. Now, what happened to those people? What happened to all the people who come back to life? So the Talmud asked that question. The Talmud offers three different possibilities. One opinion is that the story never happened. It was a metaphor. It was a vision. 
He saw this in his prophecy, but it didn't actually happen. No one actually came to life. Hashem was telling him that it will happen, but it didn't really happen. One opinion. Another view is that no, it did happen. It really happened in real life. This whole valley of people came back to life. And they were alive. Yechezkel saw them alive. And they even got a chance to praise Hashem. And then they all dropped dead again. But then there's a third opinion. That these people were Jews who had been died previously. And they were now alive. And they stayed alive. And they went on to build lives for themselves. They got married. They had children. They lived regular lives. And the Talmud then continues and says that the sage Rabbi Yehuda ben Becerra, who lived after the destruction of the Second Temple, some 450 years or 500 years after Yechezkel, says, my ancestor, my great-great-grandfather, was one of those people who came back to life. I am his descendant. That's my family tradition. And not only that, I have right over here his tefillin, the tefillin from my great-great-great-grandfather who came back to life. So it's a real story. It really happened. And they survived, and they had children, and I'm their descendant. Yecheskel also then spends two chapters where he speaks about this great war that's going to happen in the future. The war is going to be with a nation called Magog, led by their king called Gog. Now Magog is one of the 70 nations, grandchildren of Noah, mentioned in the, in the, portion, in the book of Noah, um, from the tribe of Yef, from the family of Yefet, um, usually associated with um, the northern people, um, Aryans or Europeans. Um, but Gog and Magog are going to lead many, many other nations, mostly other Yefet nations, um, in a highly destructive war against Israel. And he describes the terrible tra tra tragedy of this war and the great pain and the great destruction that will happen. How many people will die in um, and um, fields of death, valleys of death and destruction and how he's going to besiege Jerusalem and then ultimately Hashem will defeat him. And following this war, following the, the, the death of Magog, and the, of Gog, the, this king, and the destruction of this nation, Magog, the, this great war will usher in the coming of Moshiach, the, re, the redemption um, at the end of times. The details of this war are very, very difficult to understand, very difficult to follow. And commentaries debate exactly what it means. Will there actually be a real war? Is it a metaphor for the battle, spiritual battles that we must fight against evil before the end of times? What exactly does it refer to? We don't really know. Often throughout history, though, Jews and truth is non-Jews as well, have looked at the great wars. Wars always happened. That brought great, throughout history, we've had terrible wars that brought great tragedy to people who had no interest, who had no care for it. Victims of war throughout history. 
these great leaders, kings, powers, decided to wage war, killing who knows how many people, causing terrible tragedy, destroying the lives of so many people. And when this happened, people often reference the wars of Gog and Magog. Maybe this is it. Maybe this is the great wars ushering in the final redemption. They always reference to it. How else do you justify such a terrible tragedy of war? We don't know. We don't know if it happened, if it will happen, what will happen. We really don't know. Like many of the prophecies regarding the future times, they're very, very hard to know exactly what it is talking about. As we explained in our class that we did about the future times a couple months ago. But we do know for, we will know once Moshiach does come, then certainly he will then explain to us exactly what this war of Gog and Magog refers to. So the final 19 chapters of the book of Yechezkel of Ezekiel describes how after 11 years, after the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, Yechezkel was brought to Jerusalem in a vision, and he was shown the future temple. And he describes it in very, very great detail. Courtyard after courtyard, room after room, walls, entrances, every detail. And the fellow who's giving him a tour, he has an angel giving him a tour, and the fellow who's giving him a tour even has a measuring stick with him. And so he measures for him the sizes of each room and each wall and each door so he knows the exact size of everything. And he describes this temple in very, very great detail. Chapter going through many, many chapters describing this future temple that he was shown. Didn't exist yet, but he was shown. And he describes the various sacrifices that are going to be brought in this future temple. Now, some decades after Ezekiel had this prophecy and wrote it down and shared it with the people, some uh, long after Yechezkel was had already died, some decades after he had died, the people were given permission first by King Cyrus, King Koresh, and then it was stopped for a few years, but it continued. And we did a class on the building of the second temple. But they were given permission to build the second temple. And so they built the second temple. But when they built the second temple, they did not follow Yechezkel's description. Because this temple that they built, they knew would not be the final temple. And Yechezkel was speaking about another temple. So the temple that they built, there was a description of King Solomon's temple in the book of Kings, that he had built the first temple. And there's Yechezkel's temple. And what they did is they did a little bit of both. They made a little bit similar to King Solomon's temple and a little bit similar to Yechezkel's temple. They were very different. The designs of the temples were very different. In general, it was the same with a, court, a courtyard that had, there was a temple mount and a courtyard that had um, where all the sacrifices were brought and then the building of the temple that had a, a hallway a foyer with the room, with the uh, a main room that had the menorah and the bread and the uh, altar and then the room behind it with the Holy of Holies. That's for all, all that was the same. However, in the details of exactly where they were and how they were and the size of everything, it was very, very different. So the second temple was in between the Temple of Solomon and the temple described by Yechezkel. 
At the very end of the book of Yechezkel, after describing the temple in great detail, he also describes how the future expanded borders of Israel. He's shown, he's taken around on a tour around the borders of Israel to show all the expanded borders where Israel extends all the way north to the areas promised originally to Moses, going all the way up to Hamas, which is uh, in central Syria, and covering much of all of today's modern Lebanon and much of Syria, the original land promised to the children of Israel. Now, while all the prophets and many books of Tanakh speak extensively about the Torah and following the commandments, so the Torah, meaning the five books of Moshe, right? That's the Torah. The Torah is mentioned in many, many books of Tanakh. God commanding them to keep the Torah, how they must follow the Torah, they must follow God's commandments. So it's mentioned all the time throughout Tanakh. However, very, very rarely does it ever give us details of the commandments. Throughout Tanakh, it almost never speaks about the actual commandments. It mentions the Torah, keeping the Torah, and the importance of following God's commandments to keep the Torah, and following all the rules God gave us. But the actual details of the commandments are almost never mentioned throughout Tanakh. Yechezkel is somewhat of an exception. He mentions details of many of the commandments in his book. Throughout, scattered throughout the book, he mentions details of many of the various commandments. He also describes the future temple and the future sacrifices. However, many of his descriptions of the commandments and of the laws appear to contradict the laws of the Torah. And as a result, the Talmud tells us that there were sages that wanted to ban the book of Yechezkel. Now they knew that he was a great prophet. Remember, he had been the leader of Israel. He was the leader of Israel in Babylon before the temple was destroyed. He was a recognized great leader and great prophet. But there were parts of his book that they just didn't understand because it contradicted the Torah. So there were sages who said to ban it. And then they would keep it out of the Tanakh. And presumably these was, this was in the days of the men of the great assembly. At the very beginning of the second temple, a couple, a couple decades after the death of Yechezkel, the men of the great assembly, which was the Anshe Knesset Hagadola, at the very beginning of the second temple, led by Ezra, who we did a class about a few months ago, um, chose which books should be included in Tanakh and which ones should be left out. And presumably they were the ones who were debating this question. Well, Yechezkel, the prophet, was a great Jewish leader, recent one, that many of them may have even remembered personally, and a great prophet. But his book has a lot of problems in it because he has lots of laws that contradict the laws of the Torah. They're different. The details are different. And so the Talmud tells us there, there was a great scholar at the time whose name was Hananiah ben Chizkiah. And he took 300 jugs of oil for light, as well as presumably food, and took it up to an attic. And he, spent, uh, he, spent, he stayed there in that room without leaving that room until he resolved every single contradiction in the book of Yechezkel, and was able to explain each one why it's not meant to be read at face value, but if you understand it in context, 
he was able to explain each one how it does not contradict the Torah. And so the book of Yechezka was included. Now we don't know all of Hananiah ben Chizkiah's answers because he didn't record it for us. But the Talmud, throughout the Talmud, in many, many places, quotes various places in Yechezkel that appear to contradict the Torah and explains why it does not contradict the Torah at all. One example that's not really halachic, where the Yechezkel says very clearly, only those who sin shall die, their children will not be punished or shall be punished. Children of people who sin shall not be punished for the sins of their parents. Now the Torah, even in the Ten Commandments, it says... Hashem remembers the sin of fathers for their children. Implying the children are punished. So Yechezkel contradicts the words of Moses. So our sages explain, it's only those who follow in their parents' tragic ways. Those that do evil not only get punished for their own bad, but also for their parents' and grandparents' bad. Up to four generations. But those who do good do not get punished for their parents' evil. So, and in many ways, there are many other things where Yechezkel appears to contradict the Torah. The Talmud offers many, many different answers to explain it. And commentaries in the years since have touched on many other things that appear to contradict the Torah and explained each one. In one place, the Talmud quotes a... Uh, something in Yechezkel that appears to contradict detail in sacrifices, where Yechezkel describes a sacrifice in a way that appears to contradict the Torah, and the Talmud has no solution, cannot explain it. And the Talmud says, when Eliyahu Navi comes, when Elijah the prophet comes before the coming of Moshiach, he will explain it to us. It cannot be that the great prophet like Yechezkel would contradict the Torah. There must be an answer, we just don't know it. We'll figure it out, or um, the, the, we, we will be told it one day. So Yechezkel, as we mentioned, according to our tradition, died in Babylon while King Nebuchadnezzar was still king. Um, he died in Babylon. And we're told that after the death of King Nebuchadnezzar, um, when Nebuchadnezzar had originally exiled Yechezkel and all the Jewish leadership, he exiled the king at the time, King Yechaniah, the son of the previous king Yehoiakim. And when he exiled him, Yechania was placed in prison for many, many, many years. Yechania was in prison. For almost 40 years, while Nebuchadnezzar was king, Yechania was, for over 30 years, he was in prison. And after um, the death of king, now while he was in prison, he met over there, King Nebuchadnezzar had a fallout with his son, Evil Merodech, and Evil Merodech was also in prison, in the same prisons. They became friends. Many years later, Nebuchadnezzar dies. His son Evil Merodech becomes king. And Evil Merodech released his friend Yehoiakim. Not only did he release him, he made him king of the Jews of Babylon. And he gave him the job, the role Reish Galuta, the king of the exile. And he became essentially a prince um, or a, a duke um, with his own fiefdom, with his own... Um, lands and um, control within the land, within Babylon, and uh, that became a role that continued for um, about a thousand years. Um, the role of the Reish, over a thousand years, the role of the Reish Galuta, we did a class on it, of the king of the, ba- of the exile, which was descendants of Yechania, the last one of the last kings of Israel. 
So Yechania, when he was appointed as the Reish Galuta, one of the first things that he did was, he went to the grave of Yecheskel. And he built a tomb over his grave. He built a big tomb over his grave, a big monument, um, together with 35,000 Jews celebrating Yecheskel. Now Yecheskel's place, Jews lived in Babylon. We did a class some time ago about the Jews of Babylon. Um, so the Jews of Babylon would um, took care of this tomb. Um, over time, some later Jewish leaders were later buried next to the tomb. Um, and it was expanded. There were multiple synagogues there. Um, and the tomb is still there today. It is in a town called Kifl, which is 60 miles south of Baghdad on the Euphrates River. And um, there are synagogues there over the years. There's centers for pilgrims. There was even a market that they built with stores for pilgrims, souvenirs presumably, and food for pilgrims that would come. And Jews would come from all over to pray at the grave of Yechezka, Muslims too. And there were Jews that managed the grave for many, many years. Um, there was a family called um, the Daniel family that managed this grave for hundreds of years, and even some of their prominent members were buried in an area right near the grave. Unfortunately, in 1948, when Israel became independent, all the Jews were expelled from Iraq. And almost all the Jews were expelled, and in what's known as Operation Ezra Nehemiah, um, Israel airlifted in 1949 and 1950, Israel airlifted more than 50,000 Jews to Israel, and um, there were very few le Jews left in Iraq. Um, and over the years, um, they almost all, there's no Jews left. After that, after 1948, the Iraqis turned Yechezkel's tomb into a mosque and somehow decided that it was the home, the, the burial grounds of some Muslim individual imam. And so um, it's been a mosque since. Um, for years there was still, the ark was there in the synagogue with the bima, with all the Hebrew inscriptions. Um, unfortunately, in the last couple years, the last decade or so, the Iraqis have gone to a great lengths. They removed the ark and they removed the bima and they removed all the Hebrew inscriptions um, so that nobody should ever suspect that it was once a Jewish center, and now it, could ser it serves as a Shia mosque, although there have been Jews that have gone back there in small numbers and have gone to pray at Yechezkel's grave. And it's still there today, um, south of Baghdad. They went into a mosque? You're allowed to go into a mosque. You can't go into a church, but you can go into a mosque? Yes, you cannot go into a church, you can go into a mosque. Uh, because a mosque, a church is a house of idolatry. We're forbidden from going into a house of idolatry. A mosque is not a house of idolatry. They don't worship idols. Um, so we're not forbidden from going into a mosque. So, like Isaiah, Yechezkel, Ezekiel, spent a lot of time warning us to change our ways and improve. Hashem wanted us to listen to him so that the temple would not be destroyed. We would not go into the exile. But once the temple is dest was destroyed, he spoke of the return of Israel. And he spoke of the future temple in very great detail, in greater detail than any other prophet. So the book for us is a warning to follow Hashem. But it's also a book of hope with which we've lived for the last 2400 years since his time. It's a book of a promise for a better time, 
of going back to Israel, of living once again under Hashem's reign, where everybody, where we have, where the temple will be rebuilt, with the description of the future temper, temple that we pray for and we relate for, and we, and we wait for. So it's really not only a warning of um, how we should act, keeping away from our evil ways, changing our ways, but it's really a book of hope, a book of the future redemption and describing what the future times will look like and as we wait for the coming of Moshiach, may he come speedily in our days.